News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're in the middle of dealing with COVID-19, it feels like, but there's a group of Canadian business leaders and academics that have gotten together to think about a comprehensive approach to recovering from COVID-19 here in Canada. And very appropriately, they're calling it the Canadian Shield. Great name. Uh, we're joined now by Canadian business leader, McGill University professor and executive chair of Global Canada, Robert Greenhill. Robert, thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. So tell me, how did this come about? Well, a few months ago, Global Canada was looking at what were some of the best practices for democracies around the world that had conquered COVID. And we came up with a number of them, um, which we call the Tanzac democracies for Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, and Atlantic and Northern Canada. And, and you'll note in that, Simi, uh, a significant portion of those groups were actually Canadian provinces or territories. Yeah. And when we looked at what, we had, what they had done... Uh, not only was it successful in really keeping COVID cases near zero, but it looked like it might be applicable to the rest of Canada. Um, and so that's where we started saying, okay, we think this could be applied across the rest of Canada. Is it worth doing it? So we did some economic and epidemiological modeling that basically showed that the approach we're trying to use, this mitigation approach across most of Canada, not only isn't working as we're seeing in terms of increased restrictions right now from a health perspective, but it's also less attractive economically than uh, these alternate models that we'd identified. Right. Okay. So I guess the part of the problem here then, Robert, was that in the beginning, there were some areas that were reluctant to come down hard, right? To have those hard restrictions that places like New Zealand and Taiwan did do. Well, and you know, we actually got there. This summer, we basically threw away our shot to getting to near zero COVID uh, because the expert view at the time was <clears throat> you can't keep numbers near zero, it's not practical, but that it is possible to kind of manage COVID, to have it at some sort of stable, moderate equilibrium and just keep it going till vaccines arrive. It turns out both those hypotheses were incorrect, uh, that as we're seeing, trying to manage COVID is almost a contradiction in terms. But the good news is the jurisdictions that kept COVID low and adopted this near zero approach in Australia, New Zealand, in Atlantic and Northern Canada mm-hmm. have actually shown that it's very successful and particularly good at resisting this new wave. Because when you're at near zero, as soon as there is even one COVID case, you play whack-a-mole and, and you, you, know, right. you, you focus on that and get rid of it. So it never gets out of control. Okay, so here in Canada, what, what's it going to take to get us to that point? Because some jurisdictions seem like they're still a long ways away from that. Well, there's almost three groups, really. I mean, they're the groups, Atlantic Canada and the Northern Territories, which are actually in pretty good shape and have good control and near zero. There's a second group in Central Canada, Quebec and Ontario, where it's very difficult right now and where it'll probably require several weeks of a fairly tough lockdown and then sustained reductions afterwards. And then there's Western Canada, where either there have been improvements made, like in Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, or where in BC, where you've done relatively well compared to these other areas, where uh, it requires probably stronger action to keep cases going down, but not the very tough actions that are probably necessary in Quebec and Ontario. The key thing is to keep cases coming down on a weekly level. I mean, it it seems obvious, but with COVID, you're either winning or you're losing. If cases are coming down, you're winning. 
if cases start coming up, you're losing and you're inevitably going to get into a third wave and potentially a third lockdown. That's what we should be trying to avoid. And what is the technology aspect that goes along with all this? Well, you know, there's a human and a technology aspect. Clearly, um, the expanded use of testing and the idea of quick test, um, putting in better better ventilation systems in in crowded areas are all very helpful. Uh, There's also the human element, though, in terms of of reaching out to communities uh, in their language, in their milieu, so they understand what needs to be done. And also making sure that those people who are exposed to essential workers have access to the right PPE and um, and that their families, in case of exposure, have, have access to the right material so they can isolate and including potentially in community isolation areas. Right. Um, so what we're recommending is a combination of the right policies, the right accelerated application of technologies, but also to be considerate and humane uh, and thoughtful in terms of how we empower individuals and engage communities. And Ro- Robert, is this then, would you say, a roadmap for the future as well? Because this is a very valuable lesson that we have learned in the past year, and, and we can't pretend that it's never p- potentially going to happen again. No, I think that's right. Uh, it is At the end of the day, it isn't technologies, it's communities that will, 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 will stop epidemics. Um, the other thing we've learned from this is uh, there is a relationship between health and growth, but it isn't a balance to sequence. If you focus on getting the health right in an epidemic, you're setting the conditions for sustained growth. Um, I think the good news in all this is if we do it right, we could really have these next few weeks being the turning point uh, where you know COVID won't be out of our communities for several months, but we can be back in control of, of our communities within the next few weeks if we put in place these recommendations. But next few weeks, that would mean that governments would have to act very quickly on this. Do you see signs of that happening? Yeah, I think so. In a sense, governments are having to act, uh, whether they like it or not, in much of Canada because the case levels are so high. So, you know, Ontario and Quebec have been tightening up. Um, there's a rumour that Quebec will announce even stronger measures uh, tomorrow. And I, our point is, if you're going to have to do these things, do it right, do it once, you know, get it done. And then uh, when you do come out of the lockdown or whatever is required, make sure you don't release things too quickly, but you keep the cases coming down at a moderate way week by week going forward. And we're really, you know, calling for about a 20% uh, a week reduction in cases as, as the right kind of target to aim for. And I know many businesses and industries, Robert, at this point are, are very frustrated. They want this all to be over with. But are, are businesses and industries on board with this? Because this means prolonging the well, pain for them. Yeah, they're very engaged. But, well, because it, well, what's happening right now is is this yo-yo effect where people kind of open their, you know, they're told mm-hmm. to shut their business. Then they invest in the right uh, protection. They open their business and three weeks later they're closed again. You know, in Montreal, restaurants haven't been able to serve in person in, since October 1st, which was supposed to be a four-week, um, you know, shut then. Um, and what the economic modeling that was done by Queen's University for this showed was that if you make the tough decisions now for a few weeks and then continue the decline going forward, that creates the context of confidence businesses need to be able to know when they can reopen and to know that when they reopen, they'll ever have to shut again. And so with this approach, it's estimated it'll create some $37 billion of additional growth and 320,000 jobs, particularly this summer, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the present yo-yo uh, situation that we're all living in right now. 
that's kind of what they did in Australia then, isn't it, right? Like total hard lockdowns in areas that needed it, and then when they reopened, everything reopened. Yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, point. So in Australia, they had a couple of different uh, uh, scenarios. One was this, you know, locking it all down for three months or more, which is what took place in Melbourne, um, which could work here, but uh, was not what we're recommending. It turns out to be economically and from a mental health perspective, less attractive than a sharp, sharp lockdown of sort of four to six weeks and then more moderate declines going forward. And that's closer to what... Um, uh, New South Wales, which includes the city of, of Sydney in Australia, did. And, and what's been good in this is, you know, this isn't just theoretical. We have very strong examples here in Atlantic Canada and Northern Canada, but we also have the positive experience in Australia, and we can pick from Australia the elements that we think are most uh, most desirable here in Canada. So the nice thing is, you know, we can do this, and yeah. it does mean in the next few weeks we really could regain control over the virus here. All right, Robert, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. It's Robert Greenhill, Canadian business leader, former deputy minister, McGill University professor, a part of a group of business leaders and academics that have gotten together to try to present a comprehensive approach to Canada's COVID-19 recovery. They call it the Canadian Shield, which is a great name. Uh, But it's really interesting that the whole basis of this is to be a hard reset, lock it down hard get things under control, and that way they, they you know, get it to zero, essentially. There was the approach that Australia and New Zealand have taken, Taiwan has taken. No matter what, just lock it down hard and then, you know, get people vaccinated, reopen accordingly, and that way businesses can know when it's open, it's open. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, let's talk about the holiday season that just kind of ended as we all got back to work and school this week. We know that it was very difficult for people when health officials said to us, we don't want you to gather. We want you to stay within your household bubble for the holidays. I think we also kind of knew, nudge, nudge, that many people didn't follow those rules. Maybe you kept it as small as you possibly could but you probably didn't go by the letter of the rule exactly. So there's a new poll out about that this morning, right? And now this poll was a collaboration between Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies. They talked to something like 1,500 people right across the country. And what they found was 48% of the people they surveyed did visit with people outside of their households during the holiday season. So they did break the rules, 48%. Compared with 52%, who did not. Of those who did visit the friends or family outside their homes, 34% of them say they did it once, 12% said they did it mm, two or three times, and 2% said they did it often. Okay, yes, that's outrageous. However, let's keep in mind that's a very small number of people. Uh, But still, that's 48% of people admitting that they didn't completely follow the rules. And of that 48%, 34% saying, yeah, they did it once, but you know, maybe more than once. 12% admitting they did it two or three times. The poll has also suggested that 62% of the people they surveyed have little to no confidence in Canada's ability to spread, the to limit the spread, I should say, of COVID-19 over the next few weeks. Now, what makes that um, kind of sad and, and interesting is the fact that before Christmas, 
you had a lot of polling that indicated Canadians were feeling optimistic about 2021. But I think the numbers got worse over Christmas. We saw more ICUs getting crowded, more hospitals having problems, the strain on the healthcare system and healthcare workers. And now we see not yet an end in sight, despite the fact that vaccines are rolling out, right? I think we were a lot probably more hopeful about six weeks ago. Uh, Only 33% of the respondents in this survey rated their mental health as good. Only 33%. That's actually the lowest figure yet during the pandemic that Leger has found, actually. 87% of those who were asked said they would support a total ban on international travel. Now, I find that also really interesting because I think this year with the vaccination coming, people are starting to think about where, where's the first place I want to go? Am I going to travel once you get that vaccine? I am increasingly starting to feel like I'm. it's going to be very late in 2021, if, if anything, to go anywhere. I don't think, you know, I was thinking maybe summer, but I think summer is going to have to be a within Canada trip. And if getting ready to travel, anything like that, I think it's still very late in the year before it's likely anybody's going to be able to travel internationally. But would you support a total ban on international travel? This came up again, right? With this UK variant that spreads faster than the original variant of COVID-19. And people were immediately saying, shut it down. No planes from the UK, you know, get tougher on those travelers there. Uh, Even politicians who tried to circumvent the rules like in Alberta. Well, that's the thing. It hasn't actually completely happened that way. I think people would feel better if there was more of a crackdown on international travel. 87% of those surveyed said they would actually support a total ban on international travel. Now, what about you? You can be honest here, particularly about the visiting family. Like, did you perhaps visit with, spend time with people outside of your household bubble over the holidays? 48% of the people in this poll admit to doing that. That's right across Canada. How about you? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about where we are at with schools. Uh, lots of discussion about what's been going on at Earl Marriott Secondary in South Surrey. 50 students in five different classes, apparently linked to PE classes, have tested positive for COVID 19. For more on this, we're joined now by the BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Timmy. Now, what are you hearing from teachers about this Earl Marriott case? Well, I'm actually um, going to be meeting with teachers from Earl Marriott today. But uh, obviously, um, there are a lot of there's a lot of concern out there, and um, you know concerns about the things that we've been talking about for some time now, uh, the lack of preventative measures. And so, this is exactly the scenario that we were hoping to avoid, and why we've been calling on both uh, for a mask policy to be mandated, and if it's not going to be mandated across the entire province, then surely in the um, parts of the province where we're seeing the highest levels of community transmission, that mass policy will be put in place. And in this case, it would you know, definitely be the Surrey District. Um, and we've also been calling for a cap on classes in Surrey at 15. And that would be achieved by a hybrid, um, by a hybrid um, sort of process. And um, and there are, are some classes already in Surrey that uh, that have a hybrid that are a hybrid. So you know we're looking for 
small changes we think here that would really help make schools more safe. And and certainly um, we're hearing a much stronger call for that, yeah. given the situation in Earl Marriott. I guess what this also illuminated for a lot of people then, Terry, is too, is, is about the rules. Like, are they school by school? For instance, in, a, in an area that is having a lot of transmission, like Surrey, why are they still holding PE classes together? Yeah, and I th- yeah, exactly. I, I think it's not so much the PE classes themselves, but, but holding them together. And so there is still, you know, th- there certainly are recommendations, and, and that wouldn't be recommended, but there is a lot of autonomy school by school. However, um, there isn't the ability for schools or school districts to implement their own mask policy because that could be easily challenged um, as not being aligned with the provincial um, guidelines. And so, you know, we do need, uh, and some jurisdictions have guidelines that say there may be a variance in the mask policy from school to school or district to district. And we don't have anything like that in BC, but it would be helpful if we did, because then schools or districts could actually put their own mask policies in place, but that's not the case. And so, unfortunately, um, there isn't a way for schools to, um, to do that. But there is a way, of course, for schools to definitely um, make things more safe or to really think about uh, what the procedures that they have in place that they normally engage in that mm-hmm. they need to change given the, that we're in a pandemic. Yeah, and I know that we spoke about this in the past, Terry, about you're reaching out to parents as well, right? The BCTF mm-hmm. and hoping to partner more with parents about the rules because I know that in the Ermlerit case, I had a lot of emails from parents saying they knew that a lot of these kids and a lot of parents were not following the rules outside of school. How do you, how do you cope with that? Yeah, and that's, that's been part of the problem all along. So that's where cohorts break down, is when they're not followed outside of school. Uh, you know, cohorts aren't, <laughs> don't work uh, only in the school setting. Uh, and so that, that's part of the problem. Um, and the other, of course, is, uh, is just engaging in the regular mask wearing that people are supposed to be out in communities, doing communities. And, and we're aware of that. That's why we think more needs to be done to protect in schools because they're just not they're not just in school <laughs> they're in communities as well and engaging you know in different activities and so they're not coming to school when we hear schools are closed environments you know they're a product of people that aren't in those environments coming into those environments and so there there isn't anything uh, about schools in and of themselves that make them inherently safe they need the behavior uh, you know that people are engaging in both when they're at school and when they're mm-hmm. not at school. And so in this case, you know, we've been calling on parents to you know, have their children wear masks in classrooms. It's not mandated, but we're asking parents to have those conversations with their children um, in order to, you know, make sure that, that schools are safe. And, and again, particularly in the areas where we know that the community transmission of the virus is quite high. And it's really confounding as to why there's such a resistance to putting in a mask mandate, even in these areas. And so, you know, we do right. see, especially in Surrey, a need for um, a regional approach here, because what's happening in Surrey is not the same as some other parts of the province. And so, you know, why we can't be a little bit more flexible uh, in terms of what uh, those safety precautions are, especially in areas where it seems to really warrant it. Is, is very, you know, very confounding. Right. So you're saying that, you know, target even a high school like this, that, okay, you guys are all going to have to wear masks for the next couple of weeks until we get this all sorted out. You're saying target, you can target it that much. I mean, you could. It would make sense to me, though, that the entire Surrey School District 
or, you know, the, the regions of the province, because it's not just Surrey, there are other areas, like, you know, Fort St. James, um, and Burns Lake, for that matter, you know, before Christmas had, had a lot of um, outbreaks themselves, the numbers aren't quite as high because the population is lower. But there are pockets of the, in the province where we're seeing, you know, high rates of transmission in the communities. And so it makes sense that, you know, you, you should be doing more preventative measures there. There's certainly nothing to stop that. Uh, except, you know, um, mm-hmm. action from either the provincial health office or government. And, you know, government can just implement them themselves if they want to. And that's what we're seeing in other jurisdictions. BC has one of the laxest mask policies in Canada. And so when we look at other provinces, they more mirror what the provincial, what the um, federal health uh, agency is recommending. And they're recommending children 10 years old and older wear masks yeah. at schools. All right, Terry, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks a lot to me. That's Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. And I should mention here that the education minister, Jennifer Whiteside, will be on with our Mike Smith this morning at 1030. I think there's a very good argument to be made for more targeted or regional regulations, particularly in schools, when you know you have one area where there's a problem. Right. And then you should be able to target that one area to kind of bring it into compliance, bring those numbers down. Had so many emails on the Earl Marriott situation yesterday from parents in particular. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking this morning about vaccine distribution, and we know Canada is not doing as good of a job as other countries when it comes to getting that vaccine out to people and getting people vaccinated. Uh, The US, Israel, UK, all doing better than Canada is. It's not just a matter of supply. It's a matter of how quickly the doses we even have already are being distributed. Now, Globe and Mail health columnist Andre Picard has published an excellent piece on that this morning, and we want to talk about it. So he joins us now. Andre, thank you for being here. Uh, good morning. Now, you've been writing about health issues for many years. What what really got to you about this vaccine rollout? I think what I found shocking and many Canadians find shocking is just the lack of urgency. You know, the, we know that this is our one hope to get out of this is to get people vaccinated. And we got some doses, not enough, but just the fact that all these doses that we have are just sitting in a freezer and they're not being used on people is is really frustrating. Yeah. And so why is that, do you think? Like you must have asked about it. What's the reason? Well, there's a number of reasons or a number of excuses, if you want. Uh, there is, uh, we cite staff shortages. You know, it's hard to uh, get people to work during the holidays. Uh, just organization, it takes time. So sort of all the regular bureaucratic excuses. But uh, my answer to that, of course, is that this is different. This is like a wartime exercise. Those normal things shouldn't apply. You know, our health system operates 24-7. There's no reason our vaccination campaign shouldn't do the same. We should take it as seriously. Oh, absolutely. You also write about Israel in your column and about what it is that they have done well. What have they done well? Well, they've done just about everything well. They ordered well, so they ordered early. Uh, they got a large number of, a large quantity of doses of vaccine. Canada has very little vaccine overall. And then when they got it, they made sure that it got into people's arms dramatically quickly. They did 150, they're doing 150,000 vaccinations a day, which is more than Canada has done in, in the three weeks since we started receiving vaccines. So right. quite the contrast. Right. And you also pointed out, though, and I think a lot of people have as well, that you know that's a small country, it's densely populated, but you said it goes beyond that. 
yeah, it is a small country. We do have problems of geography, but the issue for me is just it doesn't matter how many doses we have, get them into people, whether it's 300,000, uh, whether it's 3 million, we should be administering them as quickly as possible. And that, that's the issue. And that's what Israel is doing. If they had half as many doses, they would still deserve the praise they're getting because they're using all their stock immediately. Yeah. Is there politics involved in this as well? Oh, there's always politics involved. Yeah. You can't talk about health without talking about politics. Uh, in Canada, we have the, the complication. You know, Israel is a very centralized country, uh, singular health system. In Canada, we have, the, we have to distribute, and we have to distribute evenly so that things look fair. That takes time. So there, there are issues of politics there. Right, but every province is responsible for doing this. And as you also point out in your column, the Atlantic provinces once again have done a pretty good job. Yeah, the Atlantic provinces have done well. Uh, to be fair, BC has done well. Uh, BC continued to vaccinate during the holidays. They didn't publish data. But when we got the updated data this morning, uh, they're among the leaders in vaccination in Canada now in BC. So, Right. As opposed to Ontario and Quebec, Andre, what has gone wrong there? Well, what has gone right? You know, those two provinces have been a disaster in many ways throughout the pandemic. And it just, I think it just sort of builds on itself. They have so many problems that vaccination has just become another thing that they've mishandled. So I, I, the issue there is quite profound about not having priorities straight, uh, lots of internal fighting, poor communication. You know, Ontario is really the model for having handled the pandemic badly, unfortunately. Do you see any signs of any of this changing then? Are we taking the vaccine distribution more seriously now? I think it's changing and it's even changing dramatically overnight since yesterday. You know, I wasn't the only person uh, writing about this. There's a lot of anger about this. You combine it with this, these stories of politicians traveling abroad. And there's just this so profound public anger about we want you to get your act together. And I had to be careful to use the right word there. But, you know, the public (laughs) really wants our politicians to do stuff now. And I think the good thing, the thing that gives me hope is I think there's a real political opportunity here. And again, if we go back to Israel, Israel's uh, president is in big political trouble. And he saw the vaccination campaign as a way of boosting his popularity. And it's worked. And I think that can work for Canadian politicians. It's kind of sad, though, isn't it? That that we're hoping that a political problem might spur them to do better? Uh, take what we can get, you know. Uh, I think if they, they what they're going to do now is really put all their efforts into this and get people vaccinated in the hope that uh, some of the other stuff is forgotten. Right. So we still have a long way to go, though, don't we? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have uh, overall, compared to other countries, we have very little stock coming in. There's only going to be, we only expect about 4 million doses between now and April. So that's a small number. And it's not going to be until April, June, July that we really ramp up uh, vaccination to the general public in Canada. So there's going to be a lot of uh, impatience. There's going to be a lot of frustration. But again, I think the key is whatever we have, let's use it smartly. All right, Andre, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Andre Picard, Globe and Mail Health columnist. Go online to theglobeandmail.com. Check out his column today. He talks about the lack of urgency in Canada's vaccine rollout, how we really need to get on top of it. He said, you know, going forward, we need all hands on deck. He said, if we're going to treat pandemic patients 24-7, he thinks we should be doing pandemic prevention in the form of vaccination 24-7 as well. 
And he said, you know, the public health seems to have been sidelined. He said in some provinces, uh, you know, pharmacists, paramedics, family doctors, like get everybody, he's saying, involved in this vaccination program. He's right about one thing. Something has changed in the last 24 hours. Perhaps it is the anger towards politicians who decided to go on vacation over Christmas when the rest of us weren't supposed to. The rest of us followed the rules. Uh, something about that hopefully will spur politicians to get going on this because if you want, they want to be seen as doing a good job. Nothing could be seen as doing a better job than getting people vaccinated and lots of them. Here in BC, I think it's next week, we're going to be getting a more thorough plan, a timeline of the vaccination schedule. But we know, we learned yesterday that BC wants to vaccinate 550,000 people in this province by the end of March. But they're going to lay out exactly who gets vaccinated by which age group and all of that in the next week or two. So yeah, we are all looking forward to that information. This is Mornings with Simi. And when you think about the most important book in history, you'd probably go, well, there's a lot of religious texts that would qualify as that. But there's an ongoing project right now that tracks down first edition copies of what might be the most significant scientific books to ever exist. So what is on that list? What are they hunting for? Well, joining us to talk about that search that he is a part of is Mordecai Feingold, author and historian, member of the Faculty of Social Sciences at the California Institute of Technology. Mordecai, thank you for joining us. Good morning and thank you. Are these the types of books that have been overlooked in the past, do you think? It's not a question of being overlooked. It's a question of being perhaps uh, underappreciated. I mean, everyone knows that this is perhaps uh, the biggest or the most important scientific book to have been published. But the assumption has always been that because of its recondite nature, readership was very limited. And one of the purposes of the census was to uh, alleviate this uh, uh, mistaken belief and to show that actually readership from the beginning was wider than expected and consequently that the influence of uh, Newtonian ideas were greater Mm -hmm. than uh, uh, presumed. Right. We're talking about a very rare Isaac Newton book. Why is it so important? Well, I mean, Newton uh, was the person who managed uh, to unify the celestial and the terrestrial world under a single law, the law of universal gravitation. And, uh, you know, since you, you, you mentioned religion before, he was the person that uh, showed in, uh, the world that it is possible for a human being to really decipher God's plan for the universe. Uh, And in that respect, it's not only a contribution to science, but a major step towards the enlightenment uh, that followed subsequently. So how do you track down a book like this? Where do you even start? Well, uh, it's an interesting detective work. Um, We started by uh, checking online resources and library catalogs um, and then we began corresponding with very kind librarians in all over the world and slowly accumulated uh, information that we needed. We went to auction records um, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's in a sense, it's a, an ongoing project. And the paper 
mean, the, the very long paper that we published, at least uh, 386 copies, is in a sense a preliminary census that intends to inform people of our research and hopefully generate information uh, about additional copies, especially those held by private collectors. Right. So what you're hoping to create is like a database of how many copies there are out there and where they are? That's right. It will be, you know, uh, hopefully a much larger census, a database that could be uh, updated all the time. But it's not only where the copies are, but it should reflect also the transmission and circulation of those copies, try to find as much information as possible about who read it and how, and what does it say about uh, the advancement of uh, modern science. What a fascinating project this is, Mordecai. I I love hearing about this. How do you decide which book, though, you're going to look for? Well, there are several ways. Uh, First, I mean, there are several individuals in the late 17th century that we know that had copies or must have had copies, you know, like the scientists, Christian Huygens and Leibniz and the like. Some of those copies we discovered. I mean, we know uh, about Leibniz's copy. We know about Huygens, uh, who actually had two copies, uh, but we haven't quite found the, 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 the physical one. Uh, so you look for those kind of copies. But me- most of the copies that we find actually shows us uh, that uh, they were owned by people that we would not have suspected. And that's what made uh, the hunt so much more interesting because uh, it shows that interest in the book and the ability to uh, get something out of it right. was wider than expected. So it's not so, just the book that you're looking for, but you're looking for the history of where that book was and who had it. Exactly, exactly. So uh, uh, sometimes we have the information about ownership uh, on the title page or elsewhere in the book. So we can start creating a genealogy uh, uh, of diffusion. But uh, it's, you know, with many, many gaps in the story. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. ongoing. So I'll give <laughs> you an example. You know, in Canada, there are three copies. Now, there is one at Dalhousie University, another one at McGill, and a third one in Toronto. So the Dalhousie University was donated in 1934 by the collector William Morse, but we don't know who owned it before that. Oh. The, one in, the one in Toronto was acquired in 1971 from a book dealer. We have no idea where was it previously. The third one we have... In McGill, we have uh, information about three owners in the 19th century that owned it before uh, Sir William Osler bought it in 1913. But uh, by looking, you know, by collecting material from auction catalogs and other records, we hope to be able to uh, fill the gaps uh, as we move along. Mordecai, this is a fascinating project. Thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you very much for having me. I love it. That's Mordecai Feingold, author and historian, member of the Humanities and Social Sciences faculty at the California Institute of Technology. And they are just going on this fascinating search uh, for the most significant scientific books to ever exist. This is Mornings with Simi. Other countries have been doing this for months. We could have certainly acted in a much more coordinated and, and straightforward fashion. 
All right. So that's a man named Mike McNaney, who is the National Airlines Council of Canada president and CEO. There is a lot of confusion for airlines and travelers and all of that. But Prime Minister Trudeau was definitely talking about traveling today. He just wrapped up uh, a bit of a press conference that he had, first one that he had for 2021. Uh, New regulations around people who are traveling recreationally and are trying to return to Canada. Now, for more on all of this, we're joined now by Travel Best Bets President Claire Newell. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this is this came down quite quickly, this news, and it's uh, a matter of getting the information out to people so that they have it. Um, one of the things that we need to be clear on is that since March 13th of 2020, we've had a travel advisory in place by the federal government to avoid non-essential travel outside of the country. That hasn't changed. Um, the fact that people who need to travel for essential services or for work or whatever it may be still have to complete this 14-day quarantine upon arrival. Big fines if you don't. But as of Thursday, January 7th, basically like 12.01 at Eastern Time, anyone who was five years and older regardless of whether they're a Canadian citizen or a Mm -hmm. foreign national, you need to have a PCR test within 72 hours of your scheduled departure. In addition to um, downloading the Arrive Can app and having that filled out before you um, see a, a customs agent when you get back into Canada. So lots of steps and lots of confusion. Um, For those people who are away, I have heard um, some horror stories. Some people, the cost is as low as $30 or $40 U.S. um, And in some places, like Cabo, $538 U.S. to get the... A single test. Right. But Claire, I have a feeling there's not a lot of people who have sympathy for somebody who went recreationally on a trip to Cabo right now. Totally agree. Totally agree. You know, the, the, the reality is, is that, um, Canadians have to have this, had this advisory in place to avoid non-essential travel. Yeah. And most foreign nationals, um, can't even travel to Canada. And I'm sure that this is the government doing what it feels is right to keep citizens safe here in our country. And so I, completely agree with that. It would be nice have, to have had a little bit more lead time and right. a little bit more coordination, given the fact that in some parts of Canada, already Calgary, if you fly through Calgary Airport, and soon to be Toronto, you don't have to do that 14-day quarantine. They test you upon arrival. They've been doing it since November in Calgary. And once you get a negative test, um, you are at no cost at the Calgary airport, you are out of quarantine. So it would be nice to have a more coordinated science-based using rapid testing that, um, and that will come, I hope, once we see the results of that. Claire, let me also ask you then, with the vaccine and the vaccinations now starting to roll out, are you getting interest from people who are saying, uh, this is where I want to go after I get vaccinated? Yeah, and that's going to be the next challenge is to make sure that there is some sort of coordinated um, way of tracking those people who have been vaccinated. And then, and I do know right. that IATA and the World Health Organization, they're working to get some commonly accepted system to identify that. But there's still so many things that you have to keep in mind. I understand there's a huge like desire for people wanting to, to have something on the books, which I think is fine. But you, if you see something and you're planning something, just make sure that First of all, it's a deal that they have the health and safety protocols in place that you can get out of it. So you've got flexible terms because we don't know what's going to happen. It's we might be vaccinated, but the place that you want to go may not be. That's right. So So the vaccines are coming. You know, the lights there Um, now is not the time to be traveling. All right. Good advice as always. Thank you, Claire. 
Thanks, Timmy. Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Yes, questions for people who are already recreational, recreationally traveling. Tougher to come back uh, to the country starting on Thursday. More to come on the news throughout the day today. Right now.